0: pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Lord, we are so desirous of you to speak to us. God, this is how you've always communicated to people, by your word, through a mediator, nevertheless, through prophets, through kings, through uh, apostles, through Christ, most of all, Lord. In these final days, you have spoken to us by him, for he is not just a messenger, but the word of God, as John chapter 1 tells us. He is God in the flesh, the Word of God, and so, Lord, we are coming to hear about the Word Jesus this morning, for He says that all the Scripture is about Him, and that the Spirit and the Father, Lord, you both bear witness to Jesus, and you do that by your inspired Word, Lord, and you sent Christ to speak to us so that we would know our sinfulness, so that we would know the way of salvation of being reconciled to you, so that we may be your people and you may be our God, and so, Lord from Genesis to Revelation, from in the beginning to come, Lord Jesus. Amen, come quickly. Lord, everything in between there is about your son, Jesus Christ, and points us to him one way or another. So, Lord, by your word, reveal Christ to us. Make us aware of the great salvation that you have brought to us. Make us aware that you are here now, communing with us, speaking with us, and that we are in your very presence. Although you are everywhere, You are especially present when your words are being declared. So, Lord, awaken us to this reality and communicate with us clearly, Lord, so that we have no mistake about what we are to do and what we are to believe. We pray this by the power of the Spirit, by his enabling. But, Lord, we can only come to you through the name of Jesus Christ, who is crucified, buried, and risen again for our sins, who makes a way for us to walk into your very presence as we are now. Bless us now, God, with yourself. Bring yourself to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon, the sermon is titled... Oh, I didn't? Oh, please stand again. <laughs> please stand again. I'm out of sorts. I was, I was out of town for a week. Malachi chapter 3. Thank you for reminding me to do my job. (laughs) The very thing for which we're gathered. Malachi chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. This is what God says through the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. That is the word of our Lord. Church, please be seated. We've already prayed this morning. Pray that God's word will keenly affect our lives. As parents, my wife and I, uh, my wife is over there, Jenny. Just want to let you know, we never have ever tried to force our daughter, Macy, who's right there. They're both wearing yellow today. That was wonderfully (laughs) coordinated. Um, We never tried to force Macy into a mold of our preferences. God's word never gives parents that sort of authority over their kids. They are not ours, our children are not ours to do with whatever we want. We can only parent within the guidelines that God gives And those guidelines entail helping them to see their relationship to their creator and their need for a savior as we show them that they are sinners. We do this by calling them to obey God's word. Obey God's word. And by the way, the sermon is titled God's Love for Obedience. God's Love for Obedience. Today we're going to talk about Israel's recoiling. They're pulling away from God in disobedience. But as parents, we are called to help them know the savior by Understanding what it means to obey God, which they will fail at. They will fail at. All right? We aren't called, them, called to have them obey our preferences. And so if, she, if Macy wanted to try ballet or tap dancing, she could. You remember those days? Yeah, not fun. She didn't like them. All right? When she wanted to ditch uh, violin, she was taking violin at one point. When she wanted to ditch that for bass, we were okay with that. And if uh, Christine Evelyn is listening online, I'm sorry about that, okay? She ditched violin for bass. When she wanted to try costume design in her school of performing arts, we supported that. And when she wanted to ditch that and opted to pursue vocals and music, we got behind that too. We weren't trying to force her into the things that we liked. As parents, our jobs over her young soul was not to reproduce our preferences in her she, was re- she wasn't required to have the same favorite foods as us or to like the same kinds of music or even to pursue a career like ours. And many parents take that approach in their job. They think, well, I reproduce physically. Well, now I have to reproduce in them the way I feel about things. And intellectually, I want them to think like I think in every way and culturally and experientially. That we think that our job is to reproduce ourselves completely in them In having kids. But that's not what we're called to do. We are called to help them direct, uh, called to help direct them towards God. We are called to help them love God, to know God, by helping them recognize that they are radical sinners in need of a more radical savior. And of course, this takes all sorts of love and compassion, patience, skill, communication, and time. Now, just because we didn't force our preferences on her that didn't mean that we did not require obedience from her we absolutely required obedience from her when she was really young and disobedient she got her spankings she's probably too young to remember those days but she got her spankings but only only after she was told what she did wrong how that displeased God and before we would remind her of the gospel and what Jesus did to save sinners and that was that We spanked her, we told her we loved her, we hugged her, we kissed her, and we told her to go play. She got her punishment for what she did that was wrong. She wasn't forced to undergo further punishment, like time out, or go to your room for the next five hours. She got her discipline and we moved on. And as she got older and older, she would get less and less spankings, and we were able to begin discussing sin in more detail and the nature of it before God. And we continued to remind her of what Christ did for sinners. As time went on, she became a teenager, and we still required obedience. But she would often come to us and tell us of her struggles of sin. And then we'd, as a as a teenager, to parents, we'd have wonderful conversations about how we parents we also struggle with sin and how we have to confess it and how we have to repent of our sin as well and how we have to continue to go to the gospel to remind us of the assurance that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But she was still required to obey. Even now as an adult, Macy now often comes to us for advice because she's seen the blessing that it is to be under the authority of God as it is dispensed by parents. And while we don't go around commanding her to do anything, really, and she can testify to that if you don't believe us, we don't go around bossing her and telling her what to do in, in every single situation in life. She sees us now as a valuable resource for life and spiritual direction. And this, th- these are things that have come from her that she's told us. And some of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about in regards to your children. Of course, any, any good things that happen, the glory goes to God through our parenting But God has his means of shaping children into obedient believers in the gospel. That means that godly and biblical parenting must be practiced in the home consistently. We didn't get it right 100% of the time. I wish we had. And looking back, I know there's many areas where we fell short. But by God's grace, even Christ covers the disobedient failings of parents. It's not just our kids that need saving. It's us parents who don't do things right the way that God calls us to. And we all have to admit that obedience is not obedience is not an easy thing to demonstrate. The truth is we all struggle with obedience. We've all struggled to obey our parents. I know uh, for me that was a long time ago. I'm, uh, I'll be 49 this year, uh, next month. And so the last time I lived at home I was 17. It's been 31, 32 years since I lived at home. But I remember struggling as a, as a teenager to obey my parents. Uh, raise your hand if you struggle to obey your parents from time to time. Right? Some of you are like, I don't remember that far back. I, I get that part. But it's still, we, we know what it's like to disobey our parents and to struggle with that. He or she who is without an obedience problem, please stand up and cast the first stone. Right. There's not one of us here. We struggle to obey our, our bosses at work. We struggle to obey our parents growing up. We struggle to obey government authorities. Most of all, we struggle to obey God. We struggle to obey the one who has made us. We are all sinners. And we continue to echo the story of the fall of mankind way back in the Garden of Eden. We continue to do that every day of our lives. Has God really said? And then we kind of dismiss it and we do what we want to do. And we repeat what Adam and Eve did in the Garden. You have to understand that we were created... To display God's image and likeness. We were created to display God's image and likeness. By obeying his commands. Which are reflections of his nature. God's commands aren't just rules for us. They are derived from who he is and what he values and what he loves. His own nature. And so to disobey God's command is to disrespect God's character and his name. And like Adam and Eve we've all rebelled. Obedience to God is a good thing. It's meant for his glory as we display his likeness it's also meant for our joy as we imitate the goodness of God Disobedience is a bad thing for it brings damnation it brings a punishment in eternity for, uh, for eternity in hell and because of our disobedience we are separated from God this wall of sin is put Enmity and division between us and God, and His wrath abides upon us, and that is why we need a Savior because of our disobedience and our disobedient nature. Disobedience is the marker in our life that reminds us disobedience is the marker in our life that reminds us that we were once in union with God but now are separated from sin. And we need someone to reunite us with God, namely Jesus Christ, the only Savior of humanity. Israel was no different. They struggled with disobedience to God. Their sin reminds us, their sin reminds us that breaking union, breaking covenant, breaking contract with God is deadly. It reminds us that breaking covenant with God is deadly, and that salvation and only is, salvation is only found in covenant union with God, in union with God. As we've made our way through Malachi, we've seen that God has addressed Israel through the prophet Malachi, whose name means messenger or angel. God has been speaking to Israel through Malachi, and God has had six problems with Israel. Most of them obedience issues, all of them heart issues. Six problems. You may want to memorize these. We've repeated them many times. This is important to understanding the whole, pretty much the whole content of Malachi. The first problem that God has with Israel is that Israel did not believe that God loved them. He chose them over all the other nations of the world at that time. And he chose them to be his people, to be in covenant union with him. And them only, they were his people. He was their God. And when other nations suffered under the judgment of God, they stayed crushed. And when they would try to rise up against God's judgment, God kept them down and punished them and destroyed them. Whereas when Israel sinned, God would punish them. They would cry out to salvation and God would restore them. he restored them over and over again. And so he treated them very differently than the other nations because they were his people and he was their God. He loved them and he proved it by showing how he elected them to be his special people. The second problem God has with Israel was that they didn't love him. That's where the real problem was. The proof of their lack of love was demonstrated in the polluted offerings that they gave to God. The value and the worth of God was shown by their sacrifices, and they brought polluted, diseased, crippled, blind, and stolen sacrifices to God. It would be like a husband offering a bag of trash to his wife as an expression of love, and that would be him saying what he thinks of his wife. And by their nasty offerings, they were showing what they thought of God, that they despised his name. They did not love him. Their disobedience in bringing improper sacrifices proved this. The third problem that God has with Israel is that they continue to break covenant with God. They're, con- they're doing that by the sacrifices, but they're also doing it in a different way. They're not keeping their marriage vows. And we talked about marriage for several weeks the the men of Israel were leaving and they were divorcing their wives and they were marrying women of foreign nations who worshiped other false gods. This was another area of disobedience. So it wasn't just a betrayal of God and a betrayal of covenant with him that they were breaking. It was also a betrayal of each other and they were all in covenant to God together, which meant they were also in covenant with each other. So they were breaking covenant with each other and with God. That's the third problem. The fourth problem that God has with Israel is that they didn't believe he loved justice. They thought God tolerated evils like perjury and sorcery and adultery and oppression. People do all these things, and you do nothing, God. God's promises, though, right, in that Passage that we looked at, God promises to show both grace and judgment. He says, I'm, I'm not ignorant of what going is what is going on. There's grace coming. I will rescue some and I will judge others. Okay? God promised to send Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant. He promised to send Jesus Christ to both purge people of sin and to punish people who want to remain of, in sin. He'll be the savior and the sentencer, the forgiver, and the fault finder. Jesus Christ will be the justifier and the judge. And so Malachi spoke of Christ coming to earth in two phases, the day of the Lord. There was a first coming, and then we know that there is a second coming as well. So fourth problem, they believe that God does not love justice, that he tolerates injustice. Then God addressed the fifth problem with Israel. And we talked about this the last time I preached. The fifth problem, they are robbing God. In the Mosaic Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, all those things I'm using interchangeably, okay? God required Israel to tithe, not the other nations, Israel only. They were to give 10% of their harvest, 10% of their flocks. All that was to go to the priesthood of Israel. The priesthood, Right? It went to them in order to support the temple work that they did. Okay? The temple work and all the sacrifices they did and in their uh, intercession between God and, and Israel, it all pointed to the saving work of Jesus Christ. They were all pictures of that and how God did not like sin. He hated it. It required judgment. And there was mediatorial sacrifices offered by priests to God. And it all painted the way for how Christ would come to save us. Now, in Israel, in their covenant, there were multiple tithes, many tithes, not just one 10%, but several. And this equated to roughly 22 to 25% of their income. This was essentially a tax in their theocracy, a tax in their theocracy with God as their ruler. The tithe, God said, belonged to him. It belonged to him, as did the land that he gave them. And so everything they possessed was from God. And he required these tithes for this gospel project, for this temple work. And they thought that if they kept it to themselves, that they'd be financially okay. If they robbed God and kept the tithe for themselves, they'd be okay. But God promised blessings on them if they obeyed God. And he promised cursings upon them if they disobeyed and broke covenant with him. And they looked around and they wondered where the blessings of God were. Why, why is everything around us failing? Why are their crops failing? Why are their flocks failing? And God said, I cursed you. I cursed you because of their robbing God in tithes. And God says, if you return to me, I will bless you. Return to me in covenant faithfulness. Return to the contract that we made. Do what I've asked you to do. You're required to do that because I saved you from, uh, from Egypt when you were in slavery to them. I saved you, therefore obey me in love, and I will bless you. And he promises to rebuke locusts and worms and to keep those things from consuming their harvest if they would return. God will bless them, and the result would be that other nations would see the grace and the love of God. This was an evangelistic project that God was working on. And we saw how all these problems are connected to the big story of Jesus Christ. So in summary... Israel has disobeyed God by offering polluted sacrifices, by treating marriages with contempt, by committing acts of adultery and uh, sorcery and perjury and oppression, and by robbing God of tithes. They've also failed to obey God by believing his truth. They don't believe the truth, that he loves them and that he loves justice and hates injustice. They have a massive obedience problem in not doing what he tells them to do and not believing what he tells them to do. They fail to believe and do what God says to believe and do. So today we come to the final problem that God has with Israel. It doesn't mean we're done with the book of Malachi yet, but we are at the final problem or disputation. Israel has a warped view when it comes to this idea of obeying God. Now, when we talk about Israel's obedience, we're using it synonymously with the idea that they are in covenant with God. They have a faulty notion of what it means to be in covenant with God or obedience to God or walking with God, okay? And while the majority of Malachi shows that they are heinously disobedient to God with their nasty sacrifices, broken marriages, sin-filled land, and refusal to tithe, this section is a little bit different. It's not that God is calling them out in a particular area of disobedience. It's that they think it's pointless to obey God Or they think it's useless to be in covenant with God. They think it's pointless to be in relationship with God. And they're going around and they're openly declaring it. They're speaking out against God and against covenant living. In a nutshell, again, they're saying it's pointless to live in a covenant with God and that God once again overlooks evil. So this morning, we come to the text in verse 13 and we see this. The first thing we see in scripture is that a disobedient life is often accompanied with unjust criticism of God. Let me say that again. A disobedient life, one that isn't in covenant with God, a disobedient life is often accompanied with unjust criticism of God. Verse 13 says this. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? Here's Israel's sixth problem. Their words have been hard, harsh, strong against God. They are not speaking favorably of God. They're being critical. Critical against the one who saved them from Egypt. Critical of the one who's allowing them to rebuild their lives after they've been in captivity for 70 years. Critical of the one who has created them as his people we learned that, the I believe, the first or second sermon in Malachi, that he is their creator, as Israel is the, uh, the nation. They're critical of the one who has dealt patiently with their plethora of disobedient acts. That's who they're being critical of. The God who never sins, who never does wrong, who is always just, who is always faithful, who is steadfast in his love. It is he, who is being spoken against. Before we go any further, can you just stop and ponder the audacity of that? The Holy One is being criticized and spoken against. If there ever has been a beam in someone's eye, it is here. There's a forest of beams in Israel's vision, so much so that they cannot clearly see And they are now accusing the just judge of the universe of being inappropriate. Think about that. The audacity of that. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, God said something else about Israel's words. He says, your words weary me. They are wearying me. Okay? They had accused God of being pleased with evildoers. That God was cool with that and just overlooked injustice. They wearied God with their words. Now their words are harsh against him. And God calls them out on it. But you know how they respond? Just like they do with every other accusation that God brings against them. They respond the same way. They deny it. Of course, God here is speaking on their behalf because he knows their hearts and their their words and their thoughts. And so their mindset is, how have we spoken against you? Just like, how have we despised your name? And how have we robbed you? Over and over again, they deny what God brings to them. Denial, shock, disbelief, right? They won't own up to it. Further confirming God's assessment through them, uh, about them through this entire prophecy that they're just living in wickedness and disobedient and breaking covenant with him. Now, words are generally spoken out loud, right? There is sign language and there's other ways of communicating, but words are generally spoken out loud. A grumbling heart, a grumbling heart, generally gives voice to those grumbles, and those grumbles often land in the ears of others, right? And what happens? It infect, what happens? It infects others, right? And then they too begin to have a grumbling and a complaining spirit. So here they are slandering God behind his back as if God could not hear. They're defaming God. Luke 6.45, in there, Jesus says that it's, listen to this, it is out of the abundance of the heart that what speaks? The mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, your lips say words, your tongue and jaw and vocal cords, they all move in unison to express what is already in here or here, wherever your heart is, okay? Vinny, is that close? All right. Thank you, Brother Chiropractor. Free plug for you, no charge. What Jesus is saying is that we mean what we say, and what we say is what we mean. Do you hear that? It is out of the abundance of your heart that your mouth speaks. You never say anything you don't mean. Our words are generated by what's in our heart. A grumbling heart is, produces a grumbling mouth. A complaining heart has a dissatisfied heart. A heart that speaks evil of God is a heart that is at war with God. You with me? I remember Paul Tripp, one of the most beautiful mustaches known to mankind, right up there <laughs> with Tom Selleck, right? Uh, I don't know who else has a wonderful mustache, Sam Elliott, um, but I remember Paul Tripp. Man, he needs to name that thing. It's, it's, it's a good mustache. But anyway, Paul Tripp, one time he explained that alcohol does not make people say things they don't mean. Alcohol just loosens your lips, loosens your self-control so that people actually say what they believe and feel on the inside. A drunk person has never said anything that they didn't mean. So too, when we speak harsh or unjust words to others, we can't b- blame being hangry. You know, when you're hungry, angry. <laughs> I said that because my blood sugar's low and I'm just I'm not feeling well. We can't blame our circumstances. The external pressures on us are not the reason we say evil things about others or say hurtful words. It is because that's what's in here. We can't blame our emotional state. We can't blame our exhaustion. We can't blame the fact that you just went through a pregnancy? That you just lost your job? That you're sick? That you have a hectic life? Your physical chemical makeup at that time? You can't blame any of those things. When we are cruel and critical to people, and especially of God, is, because of sin within us. Let's not call Jesus a liar and say it's because of these other things that I say these things. To deny that, and say, it's not my fault, it's everything else outside of me, you're making Jesus a liar. And we cannot do that. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. When Christ was on the cross being reviled and attacked, do you know how he responded? He reviled not in return. He attacked not in return. Scripture says that he did not return insults because why? That's not what was in his heart and he's being nailed and crucified on a cross, the just one being treated as a sinner, and he never did anything wrong. If there was anyone that ever had a reason to complain, it would be Jesus. Am I right? Instead, on the cross, you see him giving charge to his beloved disciple. Son, here's your mother. Mother, here's your son. Watch over her. I'm going away. That's what was in his heart. You see him asking the Father to extend forgiveness to others. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know if you see how wide the gap is between our words and God's words. Between Israel's words and God's. Do you see how vastly different we are from God? He is solitary all by himself in the way that he speaks. There is no other that speaks like our God. A category all by himself. Okay? What an amazing God we have. We in Israel, our words are way over here and God's are over there. We fall short of the glory of God. We grumble so often. And we need to understand that when we grumble, when we grumble in life, we are really complaining against God who has ordained our life. We should all be like this. Let me carefully say what I'm going to say. We are accountable for every word that we speak, Scripture says, We grumble and we complain against God. God has ordained every life circumstance for us that holiness might be produced in us. Romans 8.28 is correct. If it is, and I I believe it is, Romans 8.28, it says that God works all things, even the bad things, for good. It doesn't mean those things are good, but he works them for good for those who who he loves, who he's in covenant with, And are called according to his purpose. So that means when we grumble and complain, we're complaining against the good that God is accomplishing in around us, in and around us by his wisdom. Do you understand that? That's what we're doing. We are really complaining against God. I'm talking about real grumbling. I'm not talking about when you hate sin or that when you hate injustice. But grumbling against God comes in so many forms. How have we unjustly criticized God? What hard words have we had to say against God? Harsh words against God generally accompany a heart that is living in disobedience to God. Israel has been radically disobeying God on many accounts. God is not blessing them. Why? Because God keeps His word, does He not? He keeps His word. His covenant with Israel, His promise with Israel stipulated that He bless them for faithful obedience for remaining in covenant with him and he'd curse them for breaking this contract with them breaking the mosaic law so they're violating covenant in other words they're living in sin so they have wicked and sinful hearts so should it come as a surprise to them right or should it come as a surprise that wicked words are also coming out of their mouths their wicked deeds wicked words match okay Church, you have to understand the heart contains the issues of life. And I don't mean your physical organ. When the scripture speaks of the heart, it means that, like the internal person that you are. Okay? It is the source of bad decisions. Your heart is the source of bad words. It is the source of bad feelings, bad actions. Sin problems really are heart problems. So are word problems. Word problems are heart problems, and ultimately that means you have a worship problem. We don't love God enough. Israel is a case study for what a heart in love with sin looks like and talks like. They don't love God. They don't love God. They break covenant with God and with each other. They offer dirty sacrifices. They act out in all manner of sin. And now they speak out harshly against God and they deny it. Brothers and sisters, for just a moment, take inventory of your speech. Does it reveal a heart that is critical of God? Does it reveal a heart that is critical of God? You may not be saying anything directly against God, all right. but again, does your speech betray the fact that you are not happy with how God has ordained your life? Are you in essence saying, God is unjust and he is not doing right by me? Are you speaking harshly against God, which is evidenced in a grumbling heart? Let me press the matter even further. Okay? Talking about grumbling. But do you struggle to sing and to praise God? Do you struggle to sing and to praise God? Out of the abundance of the heart, what speaks? If your mouth can't offer praise to God, do you know why? It's not in your heart. It is not a cultural thing. It is not an upbringing thing. It is not a, well, I don't have a good voice thing. It's a heart issue. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your mouth isn't speaking and singing praise to God, it's just not there. Is Jesus lying? No. No. Something is wrong if you can't praise God. Men, your wife, I don't, I don't care that you're a man. And in this church, we do acknowledge that there is a such thing as men and women. It's what God created in the garden. Both to show his glory in different yet complementary ways. But men, it doesn't matter that you're tough or macho and that's why you don't sing to God. You think God looks down as is like, okay, you get a pass. I'm not worthy of your worship because you're a man. Your wife and kids need to see you radically in love with God and radically desirous to praise God and our Savior. Don't blame it on the cultural notion that you're not a good singer and only people with good voices can sing. You're accountable to worship God and to praise God and to set an example for your family. Teenagers, listen. If you're outside listening, I need your attention right now. If you're inside listening... Okay. Is God worthy of your praise? Has not Christ given up his life for you and risen from the dead to give you eternal life with him? Has God not done that? Then don't ever let your lips be silent when God has called us and required us to sing and to worship and to celebrate. Church, every command that God gives, there's a flip side to it. If we aren't to lie, what are we to do? We're to tell the what? Tell the truth. If we aren't to steal, then we're instead to work and to give to those in need. Instead of grumbling, we are to praise the Lord. It's not enough to stop the grumbling and speaking harsh against God. We must praise Him. We must do the opposite of grumbling and give God the glory He deserves. God loves obedience because your obedience reflects His character, which we were designed to display. You were made to act like God. Do you know that God praises Himself? God worships himself. You are not God's God. God is his God. God loves nothing else more than himself because he is the highest good in this universe. When Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock, the Lord passed by and praised his own name. You remember that? That's God's nature. That's what God is like. And you were created to be like God. Therefore, you are to praise God. Forget what others think of you. Care about what God thinks. Don't speak harshly against God like Israel in the circumstances of your life. Instead, speak words of praise. Till I die, I pray that God helps me to preach Christ from all the scripture, and I pray that God uses me to call saints to worship and adore him with their lives and with their voices. Church, remember that a grumbling heart is indicative of a heart that is out of tune with God. Disobedience isn't just actions. It's a heart issue that would eventually manifest itself in evil words. What was it that Israel was saying about God? What was it they were saying? Secondly, we look at this, that a disobedient life is often accompanied with lies about covenant life. We just saw that a disobedient life is accompanied with unjust criticism of God. Here we're gonna get into the specifics of those unjust criticism uh, criticisms. But we see a disobedient life is accompanied with lies about covenant life. Lies about covenant life. What is the first lie? They say it is vain to serve God. It is vain to serve God. Look at verse 14. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in his, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? It is vain to serve God. Vain means pointless, useless, of no good effect. So there was a purpose in their mind to serving God. There was a point to it. And what they say next sheds light on the reason that they desire to keep his charge or to keep his commands. They ask, what is the, listen to the word, what is the profit? What is the profit? What is the reward? What is the gain? What is the benefit or the blessing for our keeping covenant with him? Notice that the desire to keep covenant with God is for selfish reasons, not for reasons of adoration, not for reasons of love of God. Yes, God promised to bless them if they obeyed covenant and if they stayed in faithful covenant with him, right? But that obedience was to come out of love for God for having freed them from the slavery of the Egyptians and who God is. He is a saving God, therefore love me. And here's how you show that you love me. But they didn't want God. They wanted what God was gonna give. What is the profit of us loving you and staying in faithful obedience to you? problem is they, they think being faithful to God is pointless, right? And they think they're being faithful to God. And they think God is the one being faithless. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong and forever he is with us. That's why we sing these songs, right? To remind us of, of what we're about to learn in the word. Israel has failed beyond measure. That is why they're not receiving blessing from God. They don't love Him, and the obedience is the evidence of that. They keep the laws half heartedly in order to get stuff from God. They steal from God, and then they want God to give to them. Do you get what's going on? They serve out of selfishness and believe God is violating His own covenant and promise. And you can see how hard their words are against God. They're calling God a liar. God is not man that he should lie. Satan is the father of lies. Our God is the truth. Israel has believed their own lies about God, but not only about God, but about their own actions as well. They think that they have kept the law of God, walking perfectly with God. They think that's what they're doing, and they have not. The vanity, listen to this, the vanity is in their disobedience, not in obedience. The vanity is in their disobedience, not obedience. For if they they had obeyed God from the heart, they would be blessed. They even have adjectives to describe their walking with God. We're walking with God as if we were mourning. That is to say, they obeyed God somberly, seriously, maybe in clothes of repentance like sackcloth or burlap or coarse goat hair. Mourning is what you do when someone dies. That's how they describe their obedience, with that somber attitude. Perhaps they're trying to describe some sort of repentance that they think they're doing. They may dress the part, but their hearts are far from God. They're like whitewashed tombs, tombs that are painted white on the outside, but inside they're corrupt with dead bodies. Of course, their self-perception is wrong as often is the case with humanity. But what they're doing is, is so terrible. They're saying that it's a bad thing to be in covenant with God because God doesn't keep his promises. God is a liar. He's a cheat. He's a scam artist. He overpromised and underdelivered. But brothers and sisters, God is not the one who is at fault here. It's Israel. And it's ultimately humanity that's at fault. God never does us wrong. We dare not believe that for a minute. Even... In the worst of life circumstances, God has not done you wrong. Whatever the worst thing that you have gone through, in that moment, you still cannot rightfully say that God has done you wrong. It is never vain to serve God, to love Him, or to walk with Him. It is never vain to be in covenant with God. It is never vain to be under the saving grace of Christ. You are not wasting your life by coming to Christ for salvation and serving him as your king. It is not futile. When, when you get to the end of your life, and picture your life as a mountain that you climb, and every day you take a step towards the top of that mountain, and you, if your pursuit is God, and that's why you're struggling through life, pushing through with all the hate and the vitriol that the world throws at you, and all the laws that permit sin. And all the persecution and the mockery and you just keep climbing through adversity, pushing through and pushing through. And when you get to the top, the acme, the summit of that mountain, and you see God as your final destination, you will know that your whole life of pursuing him was worth it. If, on the other hand, you climb the mountain of selfishness and of other gods and of worldly pursuit and dreams and aspirations... And God is not your aim and you're just climbing through life. You struggled through high school. You struggled through college. And you struggled through jobs. And you got the car you wanted. And now you got the house you wanted and the boats and you went on all the vacations you wanted. You get to the top of your dream. You will see nothing but a vast wasteland. You will see a heap of trash, a dump site, a city of refuse, And God will not be there because you did not pursue him. Our God is to be our ultimate delight and treasure in this world. And Israel is pursuing the wrong things. They're wasting their life by pursuing something other than God. Don't for one second believe the lie that it is vain to serve God and to be in covenant with him. Don't believe it for a second. Israel thought it was pointless. They're ready to cast off God. And this is how many people in the church act. Many in the church act this way. Do you understand that if Christ has saved you, that you are in covenant with him? You are in covenant union with God if if Christ has saved you. God has made a contract with you. If you call upon Christ to save you, and you turn to him as Lord, confessing that he was crucified, buried, and risen again, he says, I will save you. That's a guarantee. God has made that promise and will not break it. He's called you to lovingly now worship and obey him for having delivered you, not from Egypt, but from the mastery of Satan and from the punishment of hell. He's brought you out of the real Egypt, something far more worse than living under the Egyptians. And we are to worship and obey him to show off his glory. And God promised in this covenant to give you a new heart. A new heart with his law written on it so that you will not despise him. So that you will not forsake him like Israel did over and over and over again. And unlike the old covenant, he's put his Holy Spirit in us in the new covenant, guaranteeing that we will be with God. He's that deposit That guarantee that assures us of salvation. That is a contract God made. That's a promise that is now sealed and ratified. It's made unalterable by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's how contracts were ratified in these times. And that's what Jesus did. It cannot be undone. It will not fail. God will not be faithless. And we will never fall away because he's guaranteed it. And now we await a final redemption. A final transformation. A final salvation in which God changes our outer body and gives us a physical resurrection to match the spiritual resurrection that he's already given us. And we're to walk in that newness of life now as we await for the final newness of outer life, of physical life. But this is all so that God will fix our sin problem so that we can live with him forever. And our highest joy will be in him. So what is... What's the point of being a Christian? Is it so that we can just get stuff in this life? That's not the point. It is so that we can be reunified with God forever and ever and ever. And many people, they look at their lives and they speak out and they complain against God and they have harsh words against God. What's the point? I serve God. I love God. I follow him. But look at my life. My car broke. My health is failing. My job sucks. God isn't blessing me. It's vain to be in covenant with God. And I'm telling you, it's not vain. It's not. God never promised heaven on earth right now. He never promised it right now. So do we love God? Or do we love God only for his gifts? There's a difference. There's a difference. You can tell when someone likes you because of what you do for them versus someone who just loves you. Do we love God for what he does for us? All right. Which is, it matters, but do we love God? Do we treasure him above all? We often paint ourselves in the best light possible. We're often less critical of ourselves in the way that we are critical of others. I obey God. I never really do anything wrong. I'm the victim and God has let me down. We can't buy that lie. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to Satan. It's a false gospel. And it's a false message from scripture to think that our best lives are going to be now. Okay? That God has saved us to remove all of our problems from this present life. That is a lie. It is not true. That's not what God teaches That's what Satan teaches. Do you hear that? Satan is very good at taking what God says and putting just a little bit of spin on it so that the truth is mixed with a little bit of error which voids the whole statement. And he will come to you and say, has God not promised you an amazing life? The answer is yes. But the lie is in the timing of it. Not now. He will tell you it's now. And it's not now. It's when Christ comes again and restores all things. And so to just that little bit of twist. Why isn't your life perfect now? It's because God has lied to you. He has not. Don't believe that little twist of a lie. Okay? It is coming. But don't buy the lie that perfection is now. Let us continue to love God and walk with Him in covenant in this imperfect world awaiting a final perfection. It is coming, but not now. Contrast Israel's words and our words with King David's heart. King David says it was that he delighted in the law of God. He delighted in the law of God, which is to say that David delighted in being in covenant with God, not just the Ten Commandments. When he says, I delight in the law of God, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the covenant. He delighted being in covenant with God, even though he has troubles with his enemies. And did David have trouble with his enemies? yes. He didn't say, Where's where's my best life now, God? You failed me. That's not what he said. He delights in being in covenant with God. So, too, we must delight in the gospel, the covenant of Christ, the new covenant. We must know that life with God is better than life without God in hell. Let us not go back to Egypt. Let us not desire to be back under the slavery of Satan and sin. It is never vain to be in Christ. As we look at the final portion of the scripture, we see these harsh words of Israel. We see that it's perpetuated and carried on. We see the lie taken further. Not only is it wrong to say that it's vain to serve God, but they wrongfully declare that evil people are blessed. How many of you have ever heard of the Beatitudes? Right? Matthew chapter five, the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude means blessed or more properly, a state of great joy. You know what it feels like to be blessed? You're like, man, I am blessed. You got a big smile from ear to ear, right? And you show your pearly whites. You, you, that's what a beatitude is, a state of blessing. Jesus says, This state of blessing is for people. He says, How how happy, how blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He said, How happy or how blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. He says, How happy and how blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Their happy state, this happy state, I should say, is is for those who are in the kingdom of God, and it it has changed the way that they live. This happy state is for those who are in the kingdom of God. God has saved me, I'm in his kingdom, and now I'm a peacemaker. Now uh, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now I'm meek and I will inherit the earth. I'm a peacemaker because God has made peace with me. You see, the Beatitudes aren't things that you do to inherit the kingdom of God. They're the effects of a life who has been, has been brought into covenant with God, okay? The holy living is proof that they are in union with God in covenant, in his kingdom. And the state of joy is the result of God, God's blessing upon them. That's the Beatitudes. In Malachi, we have the bad attitudes, there is a sort of perverted beatitude. Check it out. There's a lie at work here that resulted in Israel's abandonment of what it means to be blessed by God. The lie is broken down into a couple parts. Okay? And at the heart of the lie is they believe it's a good thing or it's a blessed thing to disobey God and to violate covenant with him. Look, all right. lie number two. It is good to disobey God. But blessed are the arrogant how happy are the arrogant? That's, that's the opposite of a beatitude, right? That's the bad attitude. How happy are people filled with pride? How happy they are. Insolent and presumptuous people are the happy ones. They're blessed. They're in a state of radical joy. Not us who are in covenant with God, golly. And isn't that the way the world portrays the Christian life? This is great. Look at you guys. You guys don't get to do anything. You're not blessed. Religion is there to control the masses. And it's just there to put fear in people. And it was necessary for evolutionary development. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I've heard it all. Have you guys heard these things? It's just there so you can control your kids. Whatever. How, how happy they are. Look. And sometimes we in the church, we look at them and we think, gosh, man, they're right. Look at all the fun the world gets to have. My parents are strict. My pastor says we can't do this, do that way. They don't let me do this. How come the devil gets all the good music? <laughs> Why does God withhold so many good things from me? I can't have sex before marriage. My friends can. Look at the world and how happy they are. That's precisely what Israel is doing. They believe it's better to disobey God than to remain in covenant life. The bad attitudes. Blessed are the arrogant. It says, they say, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Blessed are the evildoers, for they prosper. Blessed are the evildoers, for they prosper, if we put it in beatitude format. Do you see the, the, jealous, the jealousy that the Israelites have towards others who they deem as more evil than them? It could be other nations that they're referring to, maybe those within Israel, I don't know, whoever it is. They have this perception that some people are prospering while sinning and that that's the way to live. They fail to take into account that God is patient, And he does not always punish evildoers right away. They forget that attribute of God. And that's why if you don't know God properly, you'll misjudge him and accuse him of wrongdoing. They're looking at the covenant God has made and they are reading the truth, but they're misapplying it. They're misapplying the truth. Their discernment is way off. God has promised to punish us if we rebel and he has promised us to remain if we are in covenant faithfulness with him. Others are not faithful, but somehow they're blessed, Israel says. So in their minds, they're thinking, We're faithful. God doesn't bless us. They're not. They're blessed. God has not kept his promise. They're getting off scot free. That's how they are reading the situation. And there's no other possible way for them to look at the situation because their minds are warped by sin. They couldn't see that their own lack of blessing was because they were unfaithful to God and that the apparent success of evildoers was only because God had not brought punishment yet. They're envious and they're covetous and that has distorted everything. And let me tell you that that is precisely what causes believers to think that the grass is supposedly greener on the other side of unbelievers, that that is the place to be. Covetousness warps our discernment and our application and appreciation for what God has said. I tell you to kill that sin or it will kill you. Do not be desirous of what the world has. The second bad attitude, beatitude, is this. Blessed are the evildoers for they test and escape God. Blessed are the evildoers for they test and escape God. God has just called, previously in in the fifth problem, if you remember, God had called him uh, to put him to the test, to bring the full temple into the treasury. That's the fifth problem in Malachi. In essence, he said, test me and see if I will not keep my promise. Here the Israelites believe that evil people are testing God and God is failing because evil people are getting off. scot free God is impotent and incapable of punishing them. Either that or God is stupid and ignorant of their sin while they sneak around and do whatever they want. They basically are kind of likening God to the parent who is not aware that their kid is doing bad things behind their back and sneaking out and doing all sorts of dastardly deeds. And I think God is like that. Okay? It's like when we watch looters on TV during riots, and we see hundreds of people sinning with no consequence. It can momentarily have the appearance of, wow, look at all that they got for free, and they don't get in trouble for it. I promise you, God sees everything. Remember how Israel previously, what they previously asked in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 17, they said, where's the God of justice? They're repeating this error. They previously said that God is displeased or God is pleased with evil people. Now they're saying that evil people escape the justice of God. Seriously, that's what they're saying. How myopic they are, how short sighted. Don't you think they should be able to look back on their past history and see that God had punished them many times for their evil? They had a whole history and a whole record of their disobedience in God's justice and punishment but they don't look at that. They don't look around at the other nations and see what God has done. Let me ask ask you this in regards to God's justice. Let me put it to you this way. Ask the people of Noah's day. They've been in hell for thousands of years. Do you think they have escaped the justice of God if you were to ask them? Guys, you've been in hell many thousands of years. Did you get off scot-free? Ask The nation of Nineveh that fell from God's grace and suffered the wrath of God as Nahum prophesied. Ask them if they escaped God's justice. Ask them. Ask the Babylonians that Habakkuk whined about. Ask them if they escaped the justice of God. Ask Egypt if they got away with oppressing the Israelites. Do you think Pharaoh has any regrets these thousands of years later in hell? Do you think so? And eternity hasn't even started for him. Ask Edom if God forgot to take notice of their evil against Israel. Israel is sorely mistaken. God doesn't let evildoers escape. God sent messenger after messenger to Israel to warn them of God's justice in light of their own evil acts. Israel persecuted and killed their prophets just as they did to Jesus. Jesus preached the coming damnation just like the prophets. But Jesus also preached salvation just like the prophets. Salvation is in God, in Christ. Blessedness is found in union with the Lord. It is found in coming to God our savior, our king. It is in coming to Christ for redemption through his death and resurrection. It is always bad to be outside of covenant with God. God's sanctions and judgment on Israel prove that to us and prove it to the world. All those situations that, we, that I just mentioned briefly all point to a final coming judgment where all humanity that is outside of Christ will be condemned to the lake of fire. All those in covenant with Christ will forever be blessed, but rest assured that there will be no evildoer or evil act committed that anyone will escape Uh, uh, or that uh, will escape God's notice. Scripture warns in Malachi of the day of the Lord. Malachi warns of a coming judgment in which God will dispense justice and righteousness. And the little joy that the wicked enjoyed while on this earth, it is going to come to an abrupt end. And they will hear the fatal words from God. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. In other words, get away from me, you disobedient, filthy person. I never was in covenant union with you. Your appointed time to go to eternal fire and destruction is now. And those will be the most horrible words anybody has ever heard. And they will not have another opportunity to be in union with God. They will forever be under the consuming fire that our God is. Church, that is not a state of blessedness. That is a state of eternal agony, of, of agony and anguish where the worm does not die. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever blessedness is not found in disobeying god blessedness is found in union with christ through belief in his death and resurrection and being in union with christ starts with obeying the gospel christ calls us to repent that is an action repent turn from sin turn from self-rule turn to the rule of jesus for god's kingdom is here turn from satan's kingdom and turn to god repent And scripture calls us to then put our trust and confidence in Jesus who alone can save us. He lived a perfect life of obedience toward the Father. The Lord Jesus is forever in union with the Father and with the Spirit. He never breaks faithfulness to them. He keeps the entire Mosaic Covenant. He never veered for one moment. He never complained. He never spoke harshly against God, even though he came to earth to die for our sins. He always obeyed. He was perfectly always displaying the likeness of God, for he was God. And thus he never deserved to die. Yet he did die. He died in our place, Scripture says. Because, listen, God, unlike what the Israelites thought, God does not let sin go unpunished. He does not. Instead, for those who believe that Jesus is the Savior, for those who repent and turn to Christ, God places all of our sin upon Jesus, and then Jesus takes the punishment from God for the sin that we deserve so that no one can ever accuse God of saying, God let sin go. That it's it's okay to disobey God. You'll be fine. The wrath of God unleashed on Jesus, the crucifixion is just part of it What was done to him by the hands of man was nothing compared to the full wrath of God being diverted onto Jesus Christ and away from us. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a horrible thing to be outside of union with God and to not have your sin forgiven by Christ and not have the righteousness of Christ. And so a substitute stood in our place so that we could never have just Reason to criticize God. God is vindicated in being righteous and dispensing judgment, but God is also to be worshiped and honored and glorified by Him giving us grace and mercy and salvation and restoration. Not so that we could just avoid hell, not so that we could just have a new heaven on a new earth, not so that we could just have a resurrection life. Those are all gifts from God, you see, to enable us to be with God forever. Because you can't be with God if you're sin, a, sin, a sinner. You can't live an eternal life if you don't have an eternal body. And if you're not justified and you don't have the righteousness of Christ. Do we love God for his gifts? Yes. But they're all designed to get us to him. Do you see the difference? What, it is not vain to serve God. What's the point? It's useless. It's not. I mean, we never have the attitude that Israel had. If you're a believer in Christ, then we owe him our worship. If you're not a believer in Christ, not a Christian, I plead with you to turn from, uh, turn from your sin and turn to Christ to save you, calling upon his name. He will save you. He will unite you to himself so that his obedience is yours, so that you'll be blessed forevermore in God. Christian, let us worship God here in just a second. Our obedience will never be enough. Our obedience will never be enough in this life. God surely does love our obedience. We fall short. Christ was obedient for us so that when the Lord looks at us, when God looks at us by faith in Christ, he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus. And because of that, because of the great love with which he showed us, we can now go out and live for God. Not so that we can earn salvation, but so that we can do good deeds that worship and adore him. And that is how we are to live in covenant with Jesus. Let us pray, and in a moment we will receive communion.